<laughs> Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. I'm your host, Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity, and in the last four years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you'd like to contribute to this sponsorship fund and this podcast, please join our patron community today. It's really easy, and it starts at a dollar a month. That's only about 25 cents per podcast episode. To check out our partnership tiers and begin giving, go to patreon.com forward slash renew the arts. For this episode, Justice and I drove to Franklin, Tennessee to visit author, speaker, and pastor George Grant in his home. We spent more than an hour talking, and he shared with us his ideas and stories on both why the Reformed Church has been so sluggish to support the arts, and why that should and could be remedied. After this inspiring conversation as we were exiting his home, we saw some handwritten pages framed in the hallway before his front door. He told us they were original pages from G.K. Chesterton's notes, including some fine sketches and two outlines for books, one published and the other not even written. I thought this was fitting, as Dr. Grant reminds me of Chesterton a good bit. Like Chesterton, whether you agree with him on every point, it's undeniable that he has thought circumspectly about his subject and that he delivers his thoughts with substance and style. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. I am excited about this podcast because it is a real issue for us. This isn't a, um, not real issue. This is a conversation I actually want to learn from personally mm -hmm. because it is, it is very frustrating to be a Reformed Christian and feeling like our theology and our worldview is fertile ground for investing in the arts. Right. And constantly running into Christians. And historically it has been. I mean, uh, Paris was essentially designed by Calvinists. Uh, that uh, that were the, the the greatest artists of of the day that came out of Geneva, and obviously Napoleon and Napoleon the Third restructured a good bit of Paris, but the Parisian design that we're familiar with was was actually created by by Calvinistic architects who set the standard in the same way that Palladius did. Uh, in Renaissance Italy, in creating the Palladian style, there is a distinct Parisian style, uh, the atelier and all of the rest, that, that we immediately recognize. See a glimpse of it, the cafe, the street corner, the kiosk, all of that was created by, by Calvinists. That, that is a part of our legacy. You think about what the Reformation created among the Flemish and the Dutch, and uh, it, it not only created this incredibly industrious economic force that changed the shape of, of capitalism forever, it, it created these schools of art that are, that are to this day unrivaled. Uh, and, and so there's historic proof. <clears throat> Absolutely. That, that reform thinking is fertile ground for investment in arts and culture. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, we you know, the, the greatest music 
that the Reformation has ever uh, produced is the music that, in a sense, created classical music. I mean, with, uh, with Johann Sebastian Bach and the creation of the Baroque style, you, you have the setting of the standard in the same way that, that, um, that um, you know, somebody like Palladius did during the Renaissance for architecture. Bach does that for music. And uh, all the way up to Philip Glass, we're still following his standards, uh, however much distorted it may be. So that is the Reformed tradition. And uh, what do you think, before we get into the troubles with, that we might be facing now, what do you think is that theological um, uh, catalyst? As far as, ah, there's proof that the Reformed tradition is invested in culture and is invested in arts, but what, what is the theology behind that that you think makes that so versus perhaps other theological thinkings? Well, it's the Lordship of Christ over the totality of life and the calling of every believer to lives of diligence, vigilance, and excellence. And um, it's, you know, what Francis Schaeffer talks about when he describes the Christian worldview, the great high calling of Christians to impact their culture and to uh, impact the world through the, the ordinary uh, things in life. It's what Abraham Kuyper uh, was talking about uh, when he, he talked uh, to his students about the application of the gospel to every arena in, in life. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. You know, great Kuiper quote. So uh, understanding that, there is a stewardship that, that we have to demonstrate excellence in, in every single area. All Christians, all Christians, and every church in America patronizes the arts. The problem is, is most of the time we don't realize it. And most of the time we have such shabby uh, aesthetics that we wind up patronizing shabby art. Uh, so we hire architects, we hire landscape uh, you know, landscapers for the church grounds. Uh, we decorate the nursery. We, we are patronizing the arts. The question is, do we have a theology that would cause us to patronize good art uh, that would shape our aesthetic so that that shapes our stewardship? Uh, and are, are we going to go ahead and think through the implications of what all of this means for the wider culture, how we bring a testimony uh, to the wider culture. I mean, the truth is, is that beautiful architecture and a beautiful grounds doesn't have to be ostentatious or expensive, but beauty is attractive. If, if we're seeking to attract our neighbors, uh, then we, we, we ought not have shabby anything, shabby bulletins, shabby preaching, uh, sh shabby chairs, uh, we, we, should, we should make the most of whatever the Lord has entrusted to us. It doesn't require great wealth, it requires intentionality. It, it requires the hidden art of making all things beautiful around us. It's, it's a part of the creation mandate. 
What happens, though, when you see that the culture seems to have shifted in its perspective to such an extent that low-quality things actually bring in larger numbers? So if the point is, let's attract people. Mm -hmm. It's not the case that bad worship music, bad architecture, bad typography, bad sermon-making, bad speech delivery, et cetera, et cetera, is actually going to affect your numbers. In fact, having excellence in those things seems to almost be a detriment to your popular appeal um or at least you see that you see a lot of people who are really good who don't get uh that popular appeal and you see a lot of people who are not very good or not very aesthetically excellent in traditional categories who are getting that popular appeal um so how you know what i mean so there's got to be another reason what we've come up against is people are like well we're getting people to hear the gospel just fine using what we're using why do we why do we need to improve this? What what's the what's the impetus for that? Yeah, and and what I would say is that uh, first of all, our first goal is not popularity. Our first goal is faithfulness, obedience, truthfulness. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel in a shabby way is a denial of the gospel. Uh, l- lousy worship music actually is a contradiction of the call to do all things with excellence that we have in the scriptures. So, you know, the first thing that we have to realize is that um, the, the, the folks that we minister to are just sheep who need shepherds. So our task, regardless of numbers, popularity, polls, uh, dollars and cents, our, our task is to do what is right and good and true and beautiful. And recognizing that it's always an uphill battle. Um, the, the lack of comprehensive understanding of the gospel in the whole of life is a universal problem. It always has been and always will be. So what we've got to do is we've got to battle against that uh, with as much intentionality and beauty as we can bring in every single detail of our lives. Uh, we, we should strive uh, more stridently than Steve Jobs ever did for beautiful design and for excellence in, in life because we serve the great God who created the panoply of beauty that is displayed all around us. <clears throat> we're not being faithful to our calling. We're not bringing excellent, spotless sacrifices uh, to the Father uh, when we do crummy work, when we satisfy ourselves with uh, tin sheds uh, and um, you know bad knockoffs of pop music in worship. So if we had that going for us for a little while in reform thinking or in Christian thinking concerning the arts and culture, what happened? Well, that was a revival. That was a renewal. It was a reformation. And uh, there, there are plenty of downstream effects from renewals, uh, from revivals. We're, we're still reaping the benefits of the residual effects of the reformation to this day. I mean, the, the last remnants of freedom, opportunity, and prosperity that we have in the Western world 
are the direct effects of the Reformation. They're quickly vanishing. And so what, what we have to work for uh, with all diligence is the kind of Reformation that Calvin and uh, Luther and Melanchthon and Beza and Knox all worked for, at great risk, I might add. Uh, they, they put their lives on the line. They were hounded out of their towns from time to time. Uh, some of them lost their lives. Uh, Jan Amos Comenius had his library burned down and all of his manuscripts lost three times in his life. His wife and his children were killed. I mean, th there is great risk in, in Reformation. But that's our job. That's what we're called to. And so as artists, as preachers, as missionaries, as teachers, as mentors, all of us in every arena, we have to be willing to do what is right, take all of the risks, and push that forward knowing that uh, the Lord honors faithfulness and he will bring fruit. Uh, where the word is sown, it will not come back void. It, it, it may take a really long time and the fruit may not be evident to us for years, uh, but the, the task is semper reformanda, reformed, ever reforming, always reforming. May I ask you a question? So, do you think that art is more the word going forth or the fruit being reaped? That's a great question. I think it's both. Like all forms of expression and communication, it's both. Uh, the, the power of art is both a direct communication of beauty, goodness, truth, a, a message, a perspective, as well as this sort of background subliminal effect. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in my study right now and I've got art all around me. I don't really see it all of the time, even when I look at it. And yet, it, it, it creates an effect and it speaks to me. Uh, the ordination of elders over here uh, an old Scottish prince speaks to me and reminds me of faithfulness. That, that is clearly a, a, a painting with a message. The color version is magnificent. Um, and I've not been able to find a, a good print of it. Um, There's actually studies done about art that you hang that you don't look directly at and how it uh, changes your thought patterns even if you pass them by. Right. And it's, it's incredibly, profoundly um, influential. And uh, Francis Schaeffer's wife actually wrote a book on, I think, the hidden art of homemaking. It's called Hidden Art. And I, I just uh, bought a new hardback copy of it because my wife's old paperback copy from the 70s has fallen, fallen apart. apart. <laughs> and so I, I bought, a, and I like the English edition better because the binding's better, the paper's better, and the cover's better. So I ju it just came in the mail well, just 15 minutes ago. Oh, wow. A hardback copy of Hidden Art. Um, uh, Karen and I actually talked about Francis and Edith on our podcast last week. Mm. Um, the impact that they had on our our, our lives and our work and our ministry. But b bottom line is uh, art uh, establishes a, a number of really critical factors in our environment. Uh, it says something about us. 
It communicates something that the artist was intending to communicate. Uh, it establishes uh, tone and mood and texture. Um, it, uh, it, it creates all kinds of different effects in our lived environments in the same way that music does. Uh, really, really good classical music, studies have shown, are, it, it's great for babies. It stimulates brain function, it, uh, it, it creates quicker awareness and alertness. And there are all kinds of things that are going on. When we listen to good music that has uh, excellent lyrics or, you know, a, a fine libretta, you know, at, at multiple levels, our, our body is responding to that. God is a creator God. He made us to be sub-creators. All of us are supposed to be artists in, in one way, shape, form, or another. This is one of the great things that Edith Schaefer talked about uh, in Hidden Art. Uh, just taking a handful of wildflowers and putting it in a simple mason jar and setting it in the center of the table and lighting some candles totally transforms a meal uh, from fuel for the day to a time in which we're relaxing, conversing, relating. Art is an incredibly important part of our lives. Uh, one of the things that I love is, uh, is sculpture. I have sculpture all over the house. I have uh, sculptures of my heroes, some that I've actually commissioned uh, from, from artists um, so, some that have come to me from family or, or um, on trips that I've been on. And I love the tactile nature of them. Uh, in the early morning, the light in this room is incredible. Uh, it beams in and it creates these pools of shadows and brightness. And uh, when light falls on a statue or a bust, it's an incredible experience that is deeply affecting. Uh, all of that helps the creative process. It sets the mood for a, a home. It establishes order. I mean, there's, there's so many things that are going on. Uh, so to reduce art to merely message or uh, to merely wallpaper, background music, is to miss the point of art altogether. It's to miss the point of being human. Right. That's like the first episode of our podcast was the two lies Christians believe about art, which is that it can't preach the gospel. It can't be a message. It's and all you have to do is look at something like, like Rembrandt raising the cross right. at the crucifixion and realize, oh my goodness, oh, that <laughs> proclaims the gospel so powerfully. Or... He is a painting of the return of the prodigal. Mm -hmm. It proclaims the gospel so clearly. Mm -hmm. So, that, I mean, that, that no one can look at, uh, at the work of Albrecht Durer's brother's hands, mm -hmm. the broken hands held in prayer, and not see the powerful proclamation of the gospel. Mm -hmm. and, and the second line being that... Uh, it must always... Art must always proclaim the gospel. Those yeah. are the two ditches we tend to fall. Right. On. And yeah. again, look at Rembrandt, look at, <laughs> look at Durer. I repeat myself. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the great legacy of the Christian worldview is that we see the world 
through the lens of God's truth. Uh, so that means that we see that as the as the Flemish masters did the the beauty of domesticity, the you know the setting of a table or uh, the light glancing off the cheek of a wife in the midst of making bread. You know, th those kinds of things. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Dutch master paintings uh, is uh, a study of elbows. Interesting. There's no, no proclamation of the gospel there, and yet there's this sense of this marvelous invention the elbow. Is there anything more marvelous in all of engineering history <laughs> than the elbow? It's just remarkable. And the artist captured it beautifully, all of its dimensions and its splendor. I look at that in the, you know, the, the, the great museum right next door to the Van Gogh Museum is the, you know, the, the, the fabulous uh, National Museum of Art in uh, Amsterdam, I, I look at that painting and I can't help but see the gospel, but there is no, <laughs> there's no gospel in it. And he didn't intend to portray the gospel. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's the Christian worldview. Right. Which in some ways is the gospel, as far yeah. as seeing all things rightly. Yeah. Who would have ever thought that you could see the gospel in elbows? Yeah, absolutely. And that's... Um, Kind of what Flannery O'Connor talks about, about the artist being so consumed with the realness of life, like what is actually there, almost like fixating on an elbow. Uh, the best artists are the ones who actually see the world for what it is, right. which in a lot of ways, if you're able to do that, you are going to speak the truth. And the truth happens to be God's truth because it is. Right. Um, and, and it's oftentimes filled with both beauty and ugliness. Mm -hmm. great, great art it's not all pretty. You know, this, this is one of the criticisms that I have a lot of, of a lot of Christian art, is that we feel like it's got to all be pretty. But, but life is not pretty. The fall is not pretty. Sickness is not pretty. Uh, death is not pretty. And yet the gospel deals with all of these things in a beautiful way. And so what we've got to do when we create art, whether it's a novel or a poem or a painting or a sculpture or a pendant uh, or a building, it, it needs to be able to be true to the world as it is and as the gospel speaks to it. So one of the perspectives I really am interested in getting from you is, so we have this reformed tradition that, that sets a fantastic foundation for involvement and engagement and investment in the arts. But oddly enough, as we, you know, we launch the Nehemiah Foundation for Cultural Renewal and then Renew the Arts, and we're trying to, um, we have two main programs. What we do is pretty simple. The first one is cultivating conversations like this about the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. Second one is art sponsorships. So we find artists that are dedicated to their craft and to their faith, and we sponsor them, essentially patronize them. But in the process of doing this and talking about it as we do it, we have met with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of resistance, as you might perhaps mm -hmm. anticipate just in general. But it turns out that the most vehement resistance happens to be within our own camp as far as from reformed <clears throat> peers. And this has confounded us, um, well, to varying degrees, I think maybe me more than Michael, but I, and we sent you a document actually with a little bit of correspondence at, 
with permission, but to give you a little bit of a window into the kind of pushback that we've been receiving. So what I really want to hear from you as a thought leader in Reformed thinking today and as a PCA pastor, like, how can you help us work out why we keep running into resistance uh, within this camp? Sorry to interrupt. I want to take just a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. Without your help, we literally couldn't afford to keep doing this. I want to offer a special thanks to our newest supporters, Daniel Acosta, Evelina Pinar, and Pascal Belil. Thank you all so much for your support. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast and this movement, please join our patron community today at patreon.com forward slash renew the arts. What I really want to hear from you as a thought leader in Reformed thinking today and as a PCA pastor, like, how can you help us work out why we keep running into resistance uh, within this camp? Sure. Uh, There are probably three or four good reasons why that resistance emerges. In the Reformed world, there are streams of thought that have been reactive to bad culture. Um, and and bad faith, and those streams have uh, long outlived the circumstances from which they were birthed. So, for instance, uh, in architecture, um, the uh, the Reformed tradition after the Reformation was radical minimalist simplicity in architecture. And the reason for that was it was a reaction against the Rococo and Baroque styles, the ornate uh, sort of um, architectural embellishments that adorned Roman Catholic churches. Uh, In the same way that uh, Protestants tended to put roosters on the tops of their steeples as a poke in the eye to papists, they, they simultaneously sought to hyper-simplify their, their meeting houses. So if you go to a New England meeting house, while it's quaint and beautiful to us today, especially for those of us who live in the world of lots of tin sheds and strip malls, <clears throat> the, the truth is, is that those buildings were a radical reaction to the embellished architecture of, of Roman Catholicism. <clears throat> well, unfortunately, that, that aesthetic has bled down and it has become diluted in the, the Reformed world to the point that we feel like we have to have, basically, but, but in, instead of shiplap, uh, now we've got sheetrock, and uh, sheetrock is not nearly as aesthetically beautiful as shiplap, and so we, we don't really have We've adopted the idea of the aesthetic, but we've so, uh, by our reductionistic thinking, brought it, you know, into the cheap vernacular of uh, economic necessity that we wind up with these ugly sheds. So that's that's one good reason why there is resistance. You, You... you have this old tradition of resistance against Roman Catholicism. Secondly, uh, you have the whole question of economics, 
which is closely related, but the idea is we want to spend money on people and not stuff. And even though <clears throat> our churches do spend a lot of money on stuff, uh, particularly on cool tech tools or, um, you know, uh, grandiose buildings with lobbies and fountains and all of the rest, uh, in our mind, uh, those are all expenditures on people. Uh, and so we, we don't want the embellishments and intrusion of costly art. Uh, in, in our bill, and, and it's, it's usually argued um, just in terms of sheer numbers, sheer economics. Um, this is how much we can afford, Pastor, we can't do any, anything more. And that, that just kind of becomes embedded. And it is true that during the Reformation, there needed to be a reaction against Rococo. Thank the Lord we don't have Rococo Presbyterian churches. Uh, and uh, it is true that we need to be good stewards with our, our dollars. Uh, thank, thank the Lord we're not, you know, spending uh, millions of dollars on, on you know, r ridiculously um, foolish ar artistic patronage mm -hmm. uh, like corporate America does with their steel right. contraptions and whatever. Mm -hmm. A third good reason why um, churches and, and people in the Reformed tradition tend to resist uh, art and artistic endeavors is simply that uh, the, the, the Christian world has not been well educated. Uh, and therefore, to introduce art almost always creates some sort of conflict uh, in, in, in churches. So <clears throat> the bottom line is that we have these sort of good reasons, you know, desire to avoid conflict, desire to avoid wastefulness, a desire to avoid sacerdotal architecture, has created a tradition. Uh, unfortunately, in our context, none of those arguments are any longer valid. So what we have to do is we have to argue right now, we're, we're, we are attempting to respond to a secular culture, not to Roman Catholicism. And so what we need to do is sacralize our spaces, not desacralize our spaces. Um, we need to uh, put an emphasis on uh, a kind of stewardship that, that um, cherishes sacred space, uh, do doesn't shy away from it. And third, uh, we need to educate our people so that they begin to see the incredible necessity of good art in their lives, in their daily lives and in their sacred spaces. Mm -hmm. that, that would herald a real transformation and I'm convinced uh, would be the leading edge, uh, the, the point of the spear of a new reformation uh, because we are not going to win our culture merely with arguments or Trump signs. Uh, we're not going to win our culture that way. In fact, we're losing our culture that way. 
uh, what we've got to do is we've got to demonstrate that what human hearts long for, find satisfaction and real and abiding answers in the gospel. Uh, and uh, these answers are the practical details of family, of beauty, of goodness, of truth. This is what good art can help us do. Give the culture answers. Would you say that that about covers the resistance that we've seen, or are there any gaps there? <clears throat> well, I think a lot of the gaps are also uh, connected to another tradition that's pretty common within Protestantism, and it is like a Gnostic intellectualism, mm -hmm. where 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 the truth has been abstracted. The truth is not connected to material things. And even if they would say, Kyperian, you know, the material things need to be taken dominion over, there's mm -hmm. a disconnect between dominion over material things and spiritual truth. Right. There's a massive, like this two kingdom idea, this massive <clears throat> disconnect between the material world and spiritual, the mm -hmm. spiritual realm. It's almost like, you know, we go through this like Mormons as a time of tribulation and then we're going to go off to our spiritual world. Like that's what we're looking forward to. But even in that, there's no concept of what heaven might be like. There's no prophetic imagination concerning that. Right. Um, yeah, so. I think you're right about that. And I think that's closely tied to the idea of the primacy of the intellect. Um, one of the things that uh, you run up against all of the time in the Reformed world is resistance to counseling. Uh, because we think we can think our way out of our marriage problems, or we think we can think our way out of our child's uh, rebellion, or we can think our way out of uh, our cycles of depression. Mm -hmm. And so we have this, this notion, the, the primacy of the intellect. Well, with the primacy of the intellect, why on earth would I need pretty pictures or you know, beautiful music I, I just need to read another book, or I just need to sit under more preaching. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, th I think there is th that sort of problem. I think that's dissipating pretty quickly in our culture right now uh, because uh, we, we have gotten to the place where expressive individualism and the therapeutic mindset uh, is is dominating all but you know a, a, a few tiny pockets of the reformed world, and so I, I think that's starting to disappear. Um, I, I don't think that the Platonic sort of separation between the spiritual and the material is disappearing, but I but I do think that the primacy of the intellect is disappearing. Our oh, lack. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, yeah, our, our lack of emphasis on education, our, you know, lack of, you know, in, in the same way that Christians are resistant to invest in the arts, they're resistant to invest in the, you know, covenantal discipleship of their children. Mm. And uh, it's, it's almost as, as if all of our values have been inverted. Mm. So if, uh, if you had to give one, um, one rally call to, to Christians who don't get it yet, mm -hmm. 
is it, particularly um, the investment, because I think a lot of younger Christians are, I mean, I see a large, I think a larger proportion of my generation being called to the arts or feeling called to the arts and dedicating themselves to artistic pursuits. And um, it, there definitely seems to be a generational shift where right. all of a sudden my generation is art producers, uh, has a lot of artists, but prior generations don't see the value in that. But the problem is, in, in order for the church to move forward, you need artists and patrons. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's the model. And the, the economic model models we, are being broken. In publishing, they they're are. being pub- broken. Um, it's you know, In the music world, it's it's incredibly. And it's left a difficult. lot of a lot of <clears throat> unsolved problems with oh, yeah. how to be an artist. And I think that for the church, having stepped out of culture making for so long, it is a wonderful opportunity to say, well, guess what? Art sponsored by the market is all of a sudden almost unproducible except for the very top 1%. So how is the rest of the art going to be created and sponsored in a, in a real healthy and sustainable way? In my And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. It seems like patronage is a very obvious answer. Commissioning and patronage, you know, and and kind of stepping away from the market-based model because it's become so digitized and kind of um, removed from any real ability to. to and of course, an patronage is the primary way that great art has been produced all through the ages. Mm-hmm. The market model is relatively new, new. Yeah. and you know, it, it it's rooted in the industrial revolution. Which is part of the reason why so much of the art that has been produced from the end of the 19th century all the way up to uh, now, uh, the, the the first couple of decades in the 21st century, is so industrialized. Mm-hmm. And so for us to rely on on that model, that that mechanistic model, is ridiculous. Agreed. If we're going to have a real resurgence in the arts, then we have to return to the model that's always worked in the past, and, and that is the patronage model. And how would you approach a patron that doesn't get it yet and convince them of that? Well, first of all, that almost all patrons uh, are already buying art. They're buying it for their home. Uh, they're, they're doing... The, the, the work, it's just not intentional. It's not thought through. It's not attached to a worldview. And so part of our task is to make sure that we clearly connect the mandate of the gospel uh, with the, you know, the, the, the glorious cultural mandate that we have in, in the scriptures. Uh, we, we get the Great Commission. We miss the cultural mandate. So what we've got to do is we've got to connect them and uh, show that they are part and parcel, two sides of the same coin. Um, so part of our task is educational, uh, to, to do what Francis Schaeffer did for his entire career, what Hans Ruckmacher did uh, for his entire career. We, we, we need those kinds of spokesmen. We, we've got people like uh, Mako Fujimori and, and others who are attempting to do that with culture care mm-hmm. uh, concepts, but. They, they are few and far between. Um, you know, Charlie Peacock and Art House and, uh, you know, th- those kinds of things need to proliferate. Mm. And so you know, p- part of the task is education. Uh, if we find people that have means 
who love art, th that's where we start with the educational process. You know, if, if, if you, you know, find some guy who's a banker and he happens to have spent some serious bucks on some paintings that his wife liked at some, you know, art show, there's there's the place for your wedge strategy to begin to take effect. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. We're really getting into the nuts and bolts on this, yeah. so I wonder if. But uh, that's really that's really fantastic, and um, I really appreciate this perspective. Do you know how long we've been going, Rusty? Uh, I think close to forty-five minutes. So we should probably wrap it up. Any last thoughts from you, Michael? No. Or questions? No, I appreciate you talking to us, though. I was really, I've been really excited about this for a while, and so <laughs> I'm really happy to meet you and hear these thoughts. And it's also really interesting to hear and confirming. I think a, a lot of the things that you've said, even up to this, we've touched on in various podcasts and such like that. So it's it's just good to know that someone who is respectable uh, <laughs> has some of these. Uh, same perspectives or is thinking through these things at least in some parallel lines. So that's that's helpful. Uh, yeah. We're going to um, have a little bit of an extended conversation for specifically our patrons. And uh, so we're going to hop on over to that. But thanks for being on the main podcast. Oh, absolutely. My joy. We asked Dr. Grant what song he would like to use to finish up this podcast. And he referred us to a member of his church, a parish Presbyterian in Franklin, Tennessee, who wrote some psalm arrangements for Sunday morning worship. His name is Henry Hafner, and this is Psalm 11, Gainsborough, off of his record, Southern Psalms. We also recommend that you check out George Grant's new project that's going to be released here very soon called Keystones. It is based on the discipleship model of Thomas Chalmers, the famous Scottish Presbyterian. So we recommend you check that out at georgegrant.net forward slash keystones. Trust is in the Lord, how can you say to me? Away with speed and like a bird to your high mountain flee. What can the righteous do? What can for them avail? If their foundations be destroyed and all they built on fail, the Lord in Zion dwells, the Lord's throne is on high. His eyes behold the sons of men, oh, they will sure be tried. The Lord, the righteous, tries the wicked men he hates. For all whose hearts love violence, his punishment awaits. Fire winds and burning coals on wicked men shall rain. This is the portion of their cup, the cup which they shall drain. Because the righteous Lord did 
delights in righteousness and with his gracious countenance.